0: Hello there. Welcome to another episode of our podcast. I'm your host, Claudia with a K, and I'm joined by Deck and Key. On today's episode, we wanted to talk about Oppenheimer. Let's see it sure. I am pretty positive that a lot of you have been following social media leading up to the moment where the famous oppenheimer slash Barbieheimer moment came. You all rushed to the cinema, queued for hours to get your popcorns. The excitement then continued when you saw the opening credits, the trill and the buzz of it all. Respectful clothes for Oppenheimer, pink for Barbie. And at that moment you are in this legendary moment. At least five hours of pure cinema. This day will be engraved in your memory forever. With this movie, Christopher Nolan takes yet another challenging subject matter and attempts to tell a story of historical figure J. Robert Oppenheimer through the lenses of specially modified, fast Panavision Sphero and System 65 lenses. Even more, a dedicated snorkel lens was made for the IMAX cameras to capture the extreme macro shots of the ultra-intriguing scientific stuff. I mean, when we deal with Nolan, we know stuff is about to get real. The end product is, of course, whooping 11-mile-long physical not digital, physical film with rough weight of 600 pounds. This, dear listeners, translates to 180 minutes and 39 seconds of cinema in its purest form. Do
1: you know what I always think about with Nolan, with something like that, of he always says, oh, it's practical over, you know, digital and all of that, and there was a TikTok going around. I didn't even download TikTok. I didn't even watch TikTok. But it was him at like a film school with the 11 mile long film. And just a bunch of students, I'm guessing, were all just like, oh, wow. Oh, wow. And it just reminded me of this idea that it's like young footballers meeting Messi or Ronaldo. um, In that kind of a sense of like, you're literally watching an artist create his art in real time. You know, and for somebody that did shoot once on film, it is definitely a nightmare. Um, so he either has perfect patience or he's just insane.
2: It's also quite different when you're playing with someone else's money.
1: Very true, very true. Because, of course, there was the famous thing where Nolan moved production companies, I say in inverted commas, um, because the other production company didn't want to play ball with him. So he went away and found another ball somewhere else.
0: What? They didn't allow him to blow up the airport. So he moved to another company that did allow him to do that. Yeah,
1: in a way. And it's also like, hey, you know, has this guy got a a good enough track record of like, oh, it's Inception. It's Interstellar. It's the Dark Knight. It's Batman Begins. Insomnia, I guess.
0: Are you just um, going to give us a rundown of all of Nolan's movies? no,
1: no, 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 no. But my main point is is that Nolan obviously spent a good enough time on this to go, I want to make the purest, most film of film I can possibly do. And, yeah, I think that's it. I can't imagine myself wanting to rewatch this in a home environment. But, saying that, I will get out my fancy equipment And just go, wow, this needs to be seen on the biggest uh, screen possible. You know, an 11 mile long film. You know, I mean, imagine having to transport that and imagine dropping
0: it. I mean, look, at least you need a bit of a garage space to, you know, store it. And then you possibly need to negotiate with your partner to allow you to store it. And actually, by the way, does Nolan have a copy of Oppenheimer?
1: I would imagine so. Um I always kinda think that he gets the you know, the rawest he gets the rawest form of his films, um, where he can do whatever he wants with him, whether he wants to ever make a director's cut. You know, I don't particularly think that's his style, but he definitely is somebody that wants to do proper screenings of of films and things like that. I know when I was watching um an interview with him and Killian Murphy, um it's not Cillian Murphy, it's Killian Murphy, um where he they were going around this French film store and they were picking out films and he was explaining some of these older films with Oh I have a print of this, oh I, I did a screening of this and I'm kinda like, Imagine just coming around to Christopher Nolan's house and it's like, you know, Garrett Edwards, Edgar Wright Dennis Villeneuve just coming around and going, hey, what are we watching tonight? I don't know. Hot Shots Part 2. In what format? In film. Was it shot in film? I don't know. But, you know, I, I can just imagine these auteur directors um, watching these silly films in their private screenings and things like that.
2: I like to imagine how actors usually try to sneak props or costumes off set Christopher Nolan has tried to sneak entire film reels under his arms.
1: Oh, he definitely has. Why do you think he wears suits all the time? I mean, those blazers are definitely a little bit bigger for his, you know, maybe they're not tailored for him. They're they're designed perfectly where you can sit a film reel into your back pocket and away you go.
0: I don't know where and how he's going to Height six hundred pounds worth of film, but do you know what? We're yet to see things.
2: It'll be the newest appearance on the Met Gala. Roger in an extremely long dress as Christopher Nolan and eleven miles 11 of film.
0: 11 miles
1: just come behind him, and people like, oh, there's the there's the frame of Florence Pugh's boobs. Look, look. Oh,
0: they're gone. Oh, look, there's Emily Blunt.
1: Do you know.
0: Okay, ladies and gentlemen. Just to sum it up, I mean, if this alone does not sell you on this movie, I am not entirely sure what will. However, just to bring it back to, um, I suppose, the topic for today. Story-wise, obviously, the two gentlemen already mentioned, born and bred Irishman from city of Cork, stepping into the role of Oppenheimer, considered by many to be the father of the atomic bomb. We see a story of a genius, essentially, during his university days, later during World War II, where Lieutenant General Leslie Groves Jr., played by Matt Damon, uh, appoints America's top physicist to work on the top secret Manhattan Project. From that point on, Oppenheimer um, and the team of scientists spent years, I mean, absolutely years, developing and designing the atomic bomb. Their work does come to fruition on July 16th, 1945. This, however is not how this story ends, dear listeners. With every action, there is of, there are, of course, consequences. Post-war, where the dust has settled after bombings in Nagasaki and Hiroshima, Oppenheimer is put on trial for the alleged communist connections from the past. All of that while coming to terms with what it meant to change the history of the world for the sake of winning World War Two. Think of it as being casted out by the gods for giving mankind the unthinkable gift, power like no other, the power to destroy the world. However, at that point, I think it's it's good to just pause and hand over to my lovely co-hosts now to cover their likes about the movie. Deck, especially yourself, I know you, you follow Nolan's craft for quite some time And each time you you kind of come out of the cinema with this huge smile on your face and a statement that pretty much goes, this, this is how you make good films. Has he done it this time? Easy answer. Yes.
1: With my likes, it is very easy to kind of just dive in, I guess. It is kind of a case of, I suppose, the story. I mean, how do you get a runtime of three hours out of... The creation of the atomic bomb. Like, where, how can you get three hours out of that? And when I sat down, I was kind of thinking to myself, okay, I feel like this is a film I'm going to be sold on very, very early. In the coming seconds, minutes, even like that. And the way it opened was just, you know, I'm not going to spoil the film as best I can. But it just opened with this, I want to even just kind of say a raw feeling. You know, it wasn't even like a raw shot. It wasn't obviously a raw performance. It just felt raw. You know, it just kind of felt oof, like I'm, I'm welcoming you into this very difficult story to tell. And I hope you want to come along on the journey with me. And once I kind of felt that feeling in it, I was kind of going, okay, okay. Nolan has done, I guess, biopics before biopics I'm using in a loose term of like you know the the famous entrepreneur Bruce Wayne he obviously did a, a trilogy on, on that famous person and uh, Dunkirk of course a, a real event uh, this is Nolan's second go at World War 2 and I do think how he manages the story it's like we don't need to see boots on the ground we don't need to see you know the whole science of it all a perfect balance a perfect mix and i feel with this it definitely did so which brings me into visually i guess of yeah it's three hours there are scenes shot in color there are scenes shot in black and white the scenes shot in color definitely have a, a great vibrancy to them um a great energy to them in a modern filmmaking world i always have this worry of black and white Of is it used correctly or is the intention used correctly. But visually here for Nolan, I think he just strikes that perfect balance. I wasn't, you know, going, ooh, was it, you know, an hour and a half color, an hour and a half black and white. You know, he strikes me as a guy that would try
0: that. But here, it was just that perfect
1: balance of visual.
0: I suppose what we do see in in Oppenheimer is that the black and white is really used as a mechanism to create the atmosphere of a particular scene rather than, oh, this is a, a cool effect. Let me do that. So obviously the the fact that, you know, he had the specially made um, film or or the camera for this movie. It wasn't just to show off that he can do it. There was actual purpose behind doing it and he's done it so seemingly uh, in a way that it's just at this stage yes this is exactly how this movie supposed to look like and we don't even think too much about why is this scene black and white versus why this one is in color you just think about the the atmosphere that the visuals are creating for you yeah
1: pretty much pretty much Another one of my likes is the cast. I did, of course, see, you know, the recognizable faces in, you know, Killian Murphy, Robert Downey Jr., Matt Damon, Florence Pugh, Emily Blunt. And I was like, yeah, great. You know, love all these guys. Great to see all these actors. But when I'm watching the film and then I'm like, oh, it's that guy. Oh, it's that guy. Oh, it's oh, it's her. Oh, it's, you know, it was just end, end to end of like, oh my God, there's so many actors in this that I, for one, just recognised the face, but two, I was like, I'm pretty sure I knew they were going to be a part of the cast. I just didn't know when they were going to show up. So a few quick shout outs. I definitely felt, you know, Josh Hartnett, you know, I can't remember the last time I've seen him in a film and I was just delighted to even go, that's Josh Hartnett. Um, Rami Malek, very short scene. And I'm like, that's Rami Malek. Um, you know, it's it's nice to see these recognizable faces and I suppose they're supported by character actors. In particular Jason Clark is just this horrible, you know, interrogator um at a hearing and I'm just like that's not the role I would have ever pitched pictured him playing, but I'm so glad he did it. And you know, I'm saying all about you know Oh, I've recognized this guy, I recognize this. Is the performances any good? Well, there's two. Um, not, Well, not just two. There's two standout performances. And one of them, Killia Murphy, just absolutely tremendous. Couldn't fault that performance in any shape or form. I do think that there, that kind of dread, that look in his face at all times. I know it's become, you know, a meme sensation But looking at that, I mean, it's just, imagine what the real person was going through at the creation of this atomic bomb. And then watching Killian Murphy's performance, you're nearly feeling that energy coming off the screen. Just this horror, this dread, this, what have I done, um, is the best summary I can think of that. And the second is Robert Downey Jr.'s performance. Always thought he was a very good actor. Even in his early work. I always thought. Very accomplished actor. You know. here, Outstanding. Arguably his best performance of his career. Um, is it a case that. Because we've seen him as a hero for so long. That this performance does get that little bit of a boost. Because of that. Yes. I think so. But. I do think it's very difficult to get that. Just deep yuckness out of a performance where i think he's just managed it so well there's there's one little frame shot even that i remember where his lip is quivering and i just thought that was just perfect whether that was a direction whether that was his own choice just perfect you know little things like that you start picking up on a performance and i'm just chef case basically
0: but you see the key thing here is that for a lot of um audience again they remember the Iron Man figure you know the character the fictional character and I think look for for a kind of typical audience it would be very difficult for him to wash off that image for a very very long time however I would imagine from a film critic or a film fan perspective I think a lot of people will appreciate his performance and kind of forget about, let's say, more mainstream stuff that he would have done before that. I definitely think people
1: should. Um, I, you know, I'm not trying to argue, of, oh, forget all the Iron Man, you know, forget all the popcorn stuff he's done over the years. I think this is just a healthy reminder of like, yeah, this guy is clearly a good actor. Um, But yeah. Another one of my likes, and I know my co-hosts will have plenty as well, so I'm going to try and speed it up a little bit here for myself, is the courtroom drama feeling of it all. I'm a huge fan of 12 Angry Men. Um, and with this, it just gave me that reminder of it. You know, obviously there's a lot more happening. It's a lot more of a busy scene. Or scenes even. Um, but I just loved seeing these random character actors appear basically shouting shit <laughs> at Robert Downey Jr. and him shouting it back. And I'm just like, yeah, brilliant. You know, I could have nearly settled on just that in the film without anything else. You know, I I I would have been a happy camper with just that without the development of the bomb. But I'm glad we got the best of both worlds there. Uh, the soundtrack, very quick note because I'm always cautious of does the soundtrack work with the film? Is it a glove on the perfect fitting situation for a film? Is it, does it blend in nicely with the film? And this soundtrack, definitely, you know, there's no standout piece that I would go, oh wow, I'm going to listen to this on repeat. I just think it was used very well. But also, when you think the soundtrack is coming in, it doesn't. There's a, five ten second feeling and then the soundtrack kicks in or in cuts between the Oppenheimer hearing and the courtroom drama there's just this injection of just urgency this non-stop and it's just quick cut, quick like it's just non-stop back and forth it's just very quick editing but not like shaky editing it is very clearly planned to a tee of this is this and this And the soundtrack complements that perfectly over it. And then I suppose. Last two likes I have is. This particular horror scene. I guess is the lightest way to put this. Um, And for somebody that enjoys. Horror films every now and again. This scene was probably better than 90% of those horror films I've seen. Um, If you've seen Oppenheimer you probably know the scene I'm on about. But it's just, it's just horrifying is the easiest way I can kind of put it. It Gets that dread across the screen so well that I really don't think there was a better way to do it. Um, You know, it just landed perfectly on that. And then finally, um, I do think there is a very powerful ending to this film. An ending that stuck with me long long after the film and even recording here now it is still an ending where I'm kind of like I like Nolan's endings I always think at times he's missing that final ingredient with some endings I feel you know just as an example I think Interstellar is missing that little ingredient to just top off that ending Inception is obviously a very very good ending but this is definitely he's Perfect culmination of what he's aiming for. This is Nolan's all his best and worst beats all coming together for an ending. And yeah, that's that's really it, I guess. I'm I couldn't be more positive about Oppenheimer um as a film as a whole, but uh, Claudia, any likes from yourself?
0: Yeah, I suppose what's kind of very memorable for me and I would imagine for quite a lot of our um, audiences who who researched figure of Oppenheimer. So obviously we do have this, this quote by Real Life Oppenheimer. A few people laughed, a few people cried. Most people were silent. And this is what Nolan is showing. The complete silence as the bomb goes off. It is so chilling that you nearly hear the beating of your own heart, we then, from our seats at the cinema, feel we are becoming part of something greater, you know, something bigger than us. Um, Of course, there are other references to another famous quote by Oppenheimer earlier in the movie from from the Hindu uh, scripture as well, that pretty much goes, I am become death, the destroyer of worlds and i believe oppenheimer him himself said that that all of them at that moment felt that one way or another and i think it's it's extremely powerful that nolan managed to get that across through you know this silver screen and and we felt the the emotions and and the struggle of um of Oppenheimer as well in in the movie, which I also thought was very interesting because it was also the moment where almost one story of the movie ends to make room for another story yet to be told. So for the kind of first half, we of course deal with the with the Oppenheimer, the genius, the you know a man who invented the the impossible. Then we have that perfect midpoint The obviously the bomb um a man who gave us the, the power to essentially end the war and then afterwards I think there's equally powerful story in it we see a story of Oppenheimer essentially a, a man turned by his consciousness a man dealing with the consequences of, of his invention and, and to a, gr- a degree I, I even want to say a man destroyed by it So, no, absolutely very, very powerful imagery and very powerful story um, in there. However, Key, what were your observations about the movie? I I remember in the past we were talking about uh, Nolan's kind of storytelling techniques. And I know this is something you picked up on as well.
2: Yeah, I think in this film, Nolan does really well framing so much of the storytelling in this as inquiries. It was an interesting choice to tell the story in that fashion and I really enjoyed it. It really plays into his love of non-linear storytelling. We've seen this in examples such as Interstellar, Tanesh, Dunkirk and works really well here with a really nice way to frame it all around it. And uh, Nolan adds a bit more depth to this world as well, bringing in politics of the time. So he touches off the place of Jewish people in society at that time. He touches off leftist ideologies being a tension point within US politics. And we also get to see the decisions that drive the development of and ultimately the execution of a terrifying new bomb. There is also good tension building in a scene where the bomb is being raised before a test and the fear that the scientists there had of it, and for good reason. This is something that I think translates quite well over to the audience, this tension as it's slowly rising up and they're just so afraid of if something goes wrong. I also liked how the film splits itself quite nicely into roughly three one-hour chunks, First, we have the theoretical science and the terrifying question that it raises. We then move second on to putting that theory into practice and to see if that question that was raised can be safely answered. And thirdly, with how humans reacted to this discovery with fear, with ignorance, or even for some maybe, with arrogance. And the actors here, there's quite a few performances I really did like. Killian Murphy was an excellent choice for the role. He puts a lot of work into becoming the diminutive Oppenheimer. His tone in his speech, his slouching of his shoulders, all to make his physical frame actually smaller. It's a real big commitment to the role. He becomes the role, and I really appreciated that. We also have Emily Blunt here, who does quite well playing the wife of Oppenheimer, and even as one lawyer found out, you shouldn't mess with a housewife that lived through the 1940s. They have a strength of character not to be underestimated. And a third actor that really impressed me here is Robert Downey Jr. having one of, I think, his best performances in a long time, and I really welcome his return to form to show what a great actor he really is.
0: I can imagine that playing slimy little dot 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 is not easy but Downey Jr. does it in such a way that we nearly don't suspect it at the beginning and and there it is like bam like a slap on your cheek.
1: Oh I knew he was going to be a dickhead from the start. I was just like please just keep going with this. Please don't try and redeem this guy. Let's just keep let, let him keep dialing it up.
0: But actually, Deck, as we're, as we're on the topic of, of different actors, do you obviously remember the courtroom scene? Did you notice our beloved Tim Decay?
1: Yes. I was actually thrilled to see him. Uh, even, even though I think he only had like two little scenes, I was just delighted to see him. Uh, do you know
0: what? I was so glad that somebody like Nolan plucked him. I, I know, look, I know Decay was and I believe still is very selective about his project, but like, come on if somebody like nolan gives you the honor of being casted in his movie all you ask is like it's is is like is this where i sign uh, but actually um apart from kind of what you what you both covered um already i i have to say that what always amazes me about nolan is is the level of, of detail that goes into the movie and which is actually something i i believe i already mentioned like everything is so well thought through like Literally, every single thing has a meaning. Like, you know, from the moment where we see everyone inside of the, the bunker and Oppenheimer says that they will know if the bomb is successful in 1 hour and 58 minutes. Guess what? The bomb goes off in the movie exactly at 1 hour and 58 minute marked. Oh, and just for like shits and giggles, it just happens to be at the end of second act. I mean, look, come on, you know. Now... Another thing I particularly enjoyed myself, which both of you already touched on, uh, is, of course, Nolan being a huge advocate for practical effects. And you will be kind of sitting there in the cinema, absolutely stunned by what you've seen. And you will be wondering, how the hell did he manage to do the atomic bomb explosion? I was like, in tenant, they let him blow up the airport. I'm like, did he, like, got some special permission from the government to detonate the atomic bomb? You you would literally have these blonde moments. At first, going like, what? Where? Like, how? One thing with this that I always wished they did
1: was, of course, the whole Barbieheimer buzz. Was that Christopher Nolan should have, like... Throwing off these fake pink bombs, like they don't actually create an explosion of any kind or any damage, but just like pink air just shoots out from it, just kind of like, hey, 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 we're we're playing together here, right? You know, I I just think they, they had that chance, but you know
0: now what you see instead uh what what nolan did is he now obviously he didn't have an atomic bomb explosion um uh, there are limitations um of course i remember when i got home that evening i was i was so puzzled by it that i literally had to google it how the hell did he manage to do that so if you are wondering, dear listeners, um, just to save you the trouble, Nolan's crew did uh, multiple explosions with hybrid of gasoline, propane, aluminum, and magnesium substances. And to be honest with you, God only knows what other concoctions. But uh, all of that was filmed at high speeds from multiple angles, of course, and I believe post-production um, using digital effects just to kind of create this iconic mushroom cloud, just in case you're wondering how he did it. And finally, just if you did not have enough small details and reason why I love Nolan, we all, of course, heard the the legends at this stage about the physical film and the special cameras, etc. Right. No, Nolan, obviously being Nolan, took it further. Like a little cherry on top of the cake. In order for the black and white sections of the movie to be shot in the same quality as the rest of the film, uh, Kodak produced a limited supply of their double X black and white film stock in 70 millimeters. Because, and this is the best, it was originally sold to photographers during World War II. And it was supposedly very popular amongst uh, photojournalists. Okay, gentlemen, uh, moving on to, I suppose, our traditionally next section. I assume there's no dislikes today.
1: For me, not any major dislikes. Um, but I suppose, look, the small little crib I have is that, yeah, it's a little bit tricky to keep track of who's who. Um, who's this actor playing that character? After a while, I was just like, oh, this is Josh Hartnett's character again. ask me who josh hartnett's character was strug i'd have to i'd have to look it up who he was playing kind of a thing not a bad thing per se it's just more of a niggle pick of just like that you know there's no way we're going to keep track of all these names really key how about
2: yourself just make sure you didn't mispronounce nitpick did you
1: I did it on purpose because it was a nitpick. I'm, I'm going to mispronounce my nitpick because it was a nitpick. You know, yeah.
2: Okay, I thought you said a word you couldn't say in 2023. There's no no-no words on the podcast. Uh, for myself, the first one, it's not a major dislike. It's a
0: Wait, you have dislikes? How dare you?
2: If he was perfect, he would be an actual god, but he's mad. So, some of the name drops in the film were a bit heavy-handed for me. So you get place names like Los Alamos and people such as Teller, Bohr, Heisenberg to name a few. Now while these are people you would have heard of while studying physics or some of the theories that they published and they certainly may have interacted with each other due to academic common interests at the time, the Hollywood effect of assembling them all on screen is a little bit much for me to believe. It kind of tries to glam up these people meeting a little bit too much just trying to drop these names rather than pushing the story and the theory that they're working on ahead. It's a small qualm but it just feels a little bit unnatural for me. Uh, But on the plus side if it does help more people learn about these historical figures that is a good thing. One thing I did have a dislike with is actually the use of nudity ...in this film with specifically Florence Pugh's character. It felt a bit excessive and not much of a narrative progressor in the film. It almost felt reductive for that character that it was the biggest role that she played in Oppenheimer's life. Although, on OnePlus it, it did lead to a great visual storytelling of Oppenheimer being proverbially... ...stripped bare in his own inquiry before a board... That was diving into his private life for all there to witness. And yeah, I think that kind of covers any kind of qualms or dislikes I did have with the film.
1: And it's probably still our shortest dislike section we've ever had as well. So that probably tells you where we're going next with our ratings.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So look, to both of you. Thank you for for sharing your your thoughts on the movie. But yes, Deck, you are absolutely right. The most important moment has come now. We're going to give our ratings, even though I hope it's going to be a little bit of formality today. But Deck, um, as a subject matter expert, how would you rate Oppenheimer? So for me,
1: it is a It. This is... Maybe not my favorite Christopher Nolan film, but is definitely up there. It is a film that if I want to rewatch, I'm probably going to plan the rewatch of it. I want to free up that evening or today and just sit down and enjoy the film. But yeah, it is a see it from me.
2: For me, it will also be a see it. This has been my favorite Christopher Nolan film in quite a while. I feel his film's do hit harder when you explore science with some grounding in reality and that makes the stories more human and relatable. Claudia?
0: It's like I said it's a formality for me at this stage it's it's absolutely see it look from from a visual perspective it's it's an absolute piece of art obviously the whole story um kind of around this movie being made not only the story obviously included in the movie It's it's an absolute masterpiece yeah it might not be the best nolan's movie but it's definitely for me one of the best movies of 2023 now just something different as a closing remark Do you think that seeing Barbie and Oppenheimer on the same day was a good idea? I'm going to say
1: as an experience, yes. Do I regret it? A little bit. The gap in between the two films we left, what, an hour? Not even an hour in between the two. I definitely regret that. I feel like I might be harsher on Barbie because of that. But saying that... It's still good to see two very good directors make two very good films. Do I have a personal preference over one over the other? Of course, I'm a Nolan fan, an Oppenheimer. I felt was, by miles I guess, you could even say 11 miles, the better film out of the two. But I am very glad that I did see the two in the same day, just as that buzz as a film lover myself.
2: For myself, would I do this on the regular or times? Probably not. But as a once-off experience, I think I did quite enjoy it. It was, yeah, it really was that moment getting back into cinema and film.
0: Perfect. Um, Thank you, gentlemen, for the conversation today. And, of course, thank you to our audience for, for listening today. Let us know if there's a movie you would like us to review next. As for today, good morning, good afternoon and good night, wherever you're listening.